Live from the Jacob Media Studios, it's Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough on News Talk 1400 WOND. Be inspired, learn and understand the power of becoming a servant leader and transform your life while serving our nation. Meet those who have served our country. Learn about prosperity and overcome sickness, poverty, and despair. Serving Our Nation begins right now. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 35 of Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1492.3 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and if today is your first time tuning into the program, I just want to briefly share with you the heart behind Serving Our Nation. This is a show that is focused on encouraging people to become servant leaders. And my goal is to offer you hope and encouragement through stories each week of people that have focused their lives on being servant leaders and honoring God. Because what I know to be true is that blessings will follow from that way of life as a natural byproduct of that service. Because at the end of the day, all of us are ministers given special gifts by God and special talents. And so that means that when we see a need, we're supposed to fill that need with whatever giftings we have as human beings because serving is for everyone in all walks of life. Whether you're in the military, in business, a faith leader, a leader in your community, or you can even do something as simple as serving your family. And last week, I had the great privilege of hosting Major General Mark Simmerly and Mrs. Holly Daly on the program. And these two individuals are senior leaders in the United States Army, and they talked about the notion of putting people first. Regardless of how high in an organization you are, your job is to put others in front of you. And they talked about having the opportunity, just the chance, to lead and serve others was the greatest thing that they have as a blessing in their position. So if you didn't have a chance to tune in last week, I encourage you to go on my website and listen to the podcast from last week. And just a little bit about me for this week's guest. I mentioned to you a few times in the past that I'm the president of the Philadelphia chapter of AUSA, the Association of the United States Army. And recently I had the opportunity to go to a couple of different events where I met today's guest. So at the annual meeting for AUSA, I met Mr. Robert Bowyer. So he's my first guest today. He's the CEO and founder of Operation Black Sheep. He did two combat tours in Afghanistan. And he served in the United States Army for over 15 years. My second guest I met at the Army-Navy Soccer Cup game a couple of months ago. And his name is Colonel Retired Steve Miska. He's the Executive Director of First Amendment Voice. And he's also the author of Baghdad, Underground Railroad. So when we come back from the break, I'll be joined by Mr. Robert Bowyer. Stay with us. We'll be right back. But I was sure that you are meant to be with me You're listening to Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough, a Jacob Media Production. And welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1400 and 92.3 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and I'm joined here today by Mr. Robert Bowyer. Robert, are you on the line? Yes, sir. Well, first of all, thank you so very much for taking the time out of your busy Sunday to be on the program here today. No, it's uh, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, thank you for having me. Well, listen, when you and I met a couple of months ago, or 
weeks ago at the AUSA annual meeting. I was really captivated by your story and kind of the shared bond that we have as veterans. So if you don't mind, I'd like if you could just start out with telling the listening audience a little bit about why you joined the military and specifically the Army, what that journey was like for you. Um, My whole entire life I had wanted to serve my country in some form or another. Um, It's honestly all I ever dreamed about doing. And I remember as a young kid, like, they'd have a firefighter day, and you got the ride in the fire truck, and this firefighter one day asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And everybody that day said firefighter, and I said, I want to be in the military. And it was something I was always compelled to do, so upon graduating high school, it was what I sought out to do, and uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Wow, that is incredible. So a firefighter was really the inspiration for going into the military. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. I'd say, honestly, from the age of very young, my youngest memories, I can remember, um, I guess, being inspired by Vietnam veterans. I remember once one of my youngest memories is seeing a guy with an OD green fatigue jacket on in the store, and at the time he also had a boonie hat on, and just being completely captivated by the presence of a stranger. That would be yeah. my youngest memory. Wow. You know, it's interesting because when I was a young kid, uh, I had similar experiences. My father and grandfather both served in the Army, but we used to go into a lot of establishments where there was a lot of veterans and people wearing camouflage. I, mean, I was really struck by that. And so even as a young kid, like eight or nine years old, I asked my father if I could buy some camouflage gear. And for Halloween one year as a young kid, I dressed up as an Army guy because I thought it was just the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Almost every year for Halloween, I did the same. <laughs> Well, listen, I mean, during your time in the Army, like, what did you learn about servant leadership? What kind of lessons did the Army teach you about, you know, how to care and lead others? Um, tell you the truth, I was kind of a problematic soldier. Um, you know, good intentions, but it was very, you know, I struggled greatly throughout a lot of my career, mm-hmm. and I was the number one factor in a lot of those issues, but when I became a sergeant, and I had all the, you know, had soldiers underneath me that I, I, I would take care of. Yeah. It really changed my view on the military. It really changed my view on, you know, having somebody responsible enough to care for and then to deploy to Afghanistan and have them, uh, you know, underneath my command. Um, just kind of changed my whole perspective. And it, it really has made a lot of my life easier since then because of many of the hurdles you face as an NCO. And, uh, you know, it, it's opened many doors for me as far as mentality, jobs, and, and other things. So I'm, I'm grateful for it to this day because it taught me a lot about taking care of others and putting others before myself. Amen. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan. I think reading in your bio, you have done two tours of combat. Is that right? Yes, sir. And so... Were you an NCO during both of those tours of combat? No, first tour I was a specialist, and then in between uh, deployments I had promoted the sergeant. Okay, so your second tour then, you were an NCO, and what part of Afghanistan were you in? Uh, first tour I was in the southern province of Afghanistan, and my second tour was in the northern province of Afghanistan. And what kind of missions were you doing? Um, it really varied. Uh, one of the big things for me is I spent... Um, you know, my first, it was a 15-month tour. My first 10 months were a very relatively safe job where I probably had 
the biggest threat of getting hurt in the chow hall by some food. <laughs> and uh, um, But during that time, I also spent many days as the rifle cordon sergeant for our fallen comrade ceremonies, which is when we would lose a service member in the northern province. We'd put them on uh, an aircraft for their final ride home, flight home. And uh, I always felt, because I knew many of them and had served with many of them on my first deployment, that I owed them that respect. And um, even one of the things I look back on and struggle with was the Army gave me an award for it. Wow. Um, it was quite um, a hardship for me, but at the same time, I, I learned a lot from that because the rest of my life has always seemed a little bit easier than those days. Where you had to put a fallen comrade on a plane. Yeah, putting a fallen comrade and being the rifle cord on Sergeant Sud like the rifle cord onto attention, present arms, order arms, and usually left face, and we'd march out after the service member was placed on the aircraft. And I once was asked in a job interview about what was the toughest toughest job I ever had, and mm-hmm. it was, they were kind of trying to intimidate me about the lifting and all this stuff and yeah. for a UPS job. Yeah, and I said, "There's no job tougher than this." And when I said it to him, the whole room went quiet. And, uh, um, you know, that's the truth. And these are people that you served with, you know, shoulder to shoulder, battle buddies, if you will, and now a fallen comrade. And, you know, in the Army, we have this mantra of never leaving a fallen soldier behind. So I absolutely get why that would be so difficult. I didn't have that experience when I was in Iraq of losing somebody, but I definitely have seen that happen uh, in units across the Army. So thank you for your service and what you've done for our grateful nation. Oh, no need. Thanks for your sir. Well, you mentioned that was the hardest thing you had to do. Is there a time in your service that stands out to you as a time where God really showed up, as a time that really just lives in your heart and your mind is, wow, I can't believe that I got to do that. That was so incredible that that happened. So to tell you the truth, when you mentioned faith, um, I had started my Army career service and support in one infantry. In my first infantry unit, I got to very quickly before their deployment. During the, the deployment, I had many struggles to try and catch up to what you know was expected of an infantryman in combat arms. Yeah, and many people hated me. It was a horrible time in my life. There wasn't a lot of people of faith. Um, it really, really pushed me and made me struggle through a lot. And throughout my Army career, it, it kind of affected me in a lot of ways. And, and really, after exiting the Army, I had realized that every single thing I went through was preparing me for something greater. Yes. The hardships in which I faced was, in a sense, God, you know, teaching me that down the road something greater would come and, and still to come. But I, I've tried to since then keep a more positive attitude about my entire life. You know, that's the way that God usually works, right? You're going through something, and in retrospect, it all makes sense. But when you're going through it, you might think to yourself, why is this happening to me, and why is it happening right now? But God has a way of making things all work out in the end, doesn't he? Yes. Matter of fact, on my uh, first deployment, I was embedded with, I was with my company, and I really struggled. People did not like me. Um, there was many things that were there. My second tour, when we lost quite a few guys from the second of the final third, 
we were we were ripping out of Afghanistan, and I ran into one of my old buddies who we had we had stayed in the same hooch. And I mentioned I felt guilty for not being with him. And he looked at me, and he wasn't a religious man. He says, "You know, Robert uh, Boyer, as he called me, he said, you know that God you believe in was probably making your life so miserable that you were going to get away from here." Because he goes, and he goes, I think had you have stayed with us, you probably wouldn't be here. And it wasn't that it was problematic, but it really made me realize that maybe there was a bigger, you know, I was focused on something different and hear this, you know, friend of mine saying something like that. It really uh, resounded with me that there really might be something bigger in hand. Amen. So how has faith been able to help you cope with I'm assuming you might have PTSD from the experiences that you have. I certainly have PTSD from some of the things I've gone through, and it wasn't even as dramatic of what you're describing. How has faith been able to help you work through all that? You know, you mentioned that some people really didn't like you. Has faith been able to kind of be a mainstay for you during that? Um, It's truthfully been harder to accept um, for many reasons with my faith. And upon coming home, it was somewhat rocky. And, and I, I've been blessed. And the woman I married and have been married to coming up on 20 years has been a staple of, uh, you know, a godly woman when I'm struggling. And, mm-hmm. and I'm struggling now. She continues to do that. But the church I go to now has been the first place I felt welcomed in since actually leaving the service. Many places I went to, I kind of struggled to find my place because of things I had experienced while serving. Mm -hmm. And now I have this church family that I always feel, no matter what I do or what I'm up against, that I am still cared for and loved. Amen. um, I, for the first time in, in a long time, finally feel like I belong somewhere. Church families are great for that. I am so glad that you found a home. But, you know, I, I feel like you're also doing a whole lot of other great work besides the company where you work. So tell me a little bit about Operation Black Sheep and how you got that name. Well, um, a, a polite way was when I was in the infantry, I wound up in headquarters and headquarters company, Black Sheep. And HHC for the 2nd of the 503rd Battalion, one day the 1st Sergeant coming in, gruffing and swearing, made a comment that, all the misfits from the line unit end up in black sheep. So I get out, I go to college because my biggest weakness in the military was um, my education. My biggest weakness growing up was a poor education, Mm -hmm. struggling, being considered special needs. And Mm -hmm. upon leaving the service, I went to college and I, I, I pushed myself to try and do things outside my comfort zone. And upon going into my last years of school, I have a degree in history. I focused on 19th and 20th century warfare. I spent for my senior thesis interviewing a countless number of Vietnam veterans. And it became very clear to me that our Vietnam veterans, many of them still felt as though they weren't given a proper welcome. Sure. So a friend of mine who introduced me to boating and water at Michigan, which I was born and raised here, as a form of relaxation and therapy out on the water. Uh, We had a conversation one day about wanting to do more to help Vietnam veterans particularly. We discussed about getting a boat of some sort from Vietnam era, and he encouraged me to do it. Said if anyone could do it, I could and that I should. And within 
48 hours, I had settled on a boat called the PVR. Within two weeks, I had a solid plan. Within a month, I had a gentleman's agreement to get a boat. And, uh, you know, our, our big rule is is everyone is broken, veteran or non Yes. And everyone uh, has struggles, and if we can help each other, we'll be okay. And then our second rule is just we don't discuss politics because um, politics tend to divide people, and we want to bring people together. I love it. So I want to ask you, as you've been leading this organization and helping other veterans, what has been the biggest blessing that you've received from your ministry, from the work that you're doing? Well, when you get to hear, for instance, just prior to the very conversation we're having right now, I just met a gentleman who served with 25th Tropical Infantry in Vietnam. And when I was looking over his paperwork, there was pictures and awards where he had gotten shot in the head by an NVA and a bullet wrapped around his helmet and it went in one side and kind of wrapped around the other and stopped. Wow. You meet veterans like that. And, oh, by the way, he stayed in country. He went to the hospital for three days and they were right back out in the field. Yeah. You meet guys like that. And I came home and kind of wanted to boo-hoo and pout. And woe is me, woe is me. And um, you meet people like that and it really humbles you to realize that you don't have it so bad. I love it. And many of these veterans have just been through so much worse that you kind of gives you a new perspective on your own life. Absolutely. Well, we've got about a minute and a half left, so I wonder if you would just share with us any advice that you might offer to a veteran who, you know, they might feel just like you did that, you know, people don't like them or maybe they don't have a lot to give and, you know, maybe they weren't great with education, but they want to help. They want to help other veterans, but they're just kind of reluctant to get started, or maybe they're suffering with PTSD and they don't even know where to go for help, somebody that might be in a situation that you were experiencing, what advice would you offer to them? Um, I believe in a spiritual level, a godly level of karma. Yes. I believe in doing good things and good things will happen and doing bad things, and it's really changed my life. In a time when I was kind of doing some not okay things and trouble was happening, I believe that if you just do the right thing without wanting recognition, without wanting a pat on the back, that you do the right thing because you believe that, you know, someone is watching over you, whether it be a family member or what, that you do that for the, the sake of just doing it. And a lot of people do things nowadays for recognition, and, and I think we need to get away from that and just be proud that we're doing it for ourselves and maybe our family. Amen. I love it. I want to thank you so very much, Robert, for being on the program and sharing your heart and sharing everything that you were doing. And again, thank you for your service. Thank you for your sir. And it was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. All right. When we come back from the break, I'm going to be joined by Colonel Retired Steve Miska. So stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're interested in connecting with Dr. Paul McCullough or interested in being featured on the show, 
Contact Jacob Media Partners via LinkedIn. Now, back to Serving Our Nation. And welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk, 1492.3 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and I'm joined here today by Colonel Retired Steve Miska. Steve, you on the line? Uh, yes, sir. How are you doing, Paul? I am great. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your Sunday to be on the show today. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Well, Steve, you know, when you and I connected a few weeks ago, I was so captivated by your story, by your book, all the different things that you've done. But l- reading through your bio, it feels like the beginning of your journey was you joining the Army. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think um, I, you know, I, I didn't know much about the Army. My dad had been drafted in Vietnam, and I was growing up on Long Island, and uh, he uh he talked to me when I was 16 and basically said, you know, you should consider going to West Point. And I, I said at that time, what's West Point? I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, he, he, he encouraged me to do that, and I was fortunate enough to get accepted and uh, never looked back after that. Wow. And so what did you commission as? What so branch? I commissioned the infantry, in the infantry, in the Army. Okay. And... Uh, my first couple assignments was uh, jumping out of perfectly good airplane. <laughs> and how long did you serve in our beloved Army? So I did 25 years and um, retired uh, about six years ago, back in 2015, and now I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so during your 25 years in the Army, and you retired at the rank of full colonel, uh, if I'm correct. What did Correct. you learn about servant leadership and really how to lead and care for others during your time in our Army? Mm. So, you know, I had a lot of good mentors and, and role models, and I tend to gravitate toward a style of leadership that is very people-centric. Yep. So, you know, we, the Army talked about, you know, the, the balancing two imperatives, the mission and the man. Right, and my philosophy was always, if I take care of the people in my organization, there's no mission they can't accomplish. Right? Amen. Do that yes. Right. You know, I had the same exact command philosophy when uh, I had command of a small unit in Kuwait. I was uh, responsible for the logistics for, uh, it was a DLA support team, and I had Kuwait, Iraq, Syria, and and Jordan, all in my footprint. The only thing I didn't cover was Afghanistan. There was another 05 covering that area. And so the brigade commander and the two-star, they asked me, hey, so uh, Colonel, what's your priorities? And you know, how are you gonna lead your team and da da da? And I said, sir, my absolute highest priority is taking care of my team because if I do a really good job of taking care of my team and making sure that they have everything that they need, both personally and in terms of their career and doing their job, I am absolutely sure they're gonna go above and beyond for our customer. So the mission will automatically get taken care of by me taking care of them. And they were a little yeah, bit apprehensive yeah, about yeah. that. And they were like, what, are, are you sure about that? Like the mission support? Yes, sir, it is. But I'm telling you, if I take care of my guys, they'll take care of the customer. And they said, well, all right, I'll give you a little bit of slack. And it wound up being absolutely true. I got so many positive customer reviews and yeah, I could not agree with you more. So yeah, it, it was just amazing. You know, just if, if you do that well, then you just become a cheerleader. Right? That's right. You, exactly. You get out of your way. Yes. 
we got all these positive reviews in our unit, and I literally put up a kudos board doing exactly what you just said, and I would just highlight every single day all the positive things that our customer units are saying about our guys. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, your time in the Army is fairly unique reading through your bio, so you had an opportunity to serve under President Obama on the National Security Council. Is that right? Correct, yeah. I, uh, so I did three combat tours in Iraq um, between uh, 2004 and 2009, and my family lived in Germany. And then we relocated to to Washington, D.C., and I did three combat tours in Washington, D.C. So wow. that was a whole other <laughs> you know, ball of wax. Yeah. I really, I learned a lot on the, uh, the Obama NSC. Um, what was really surprising to me what, because, you know, I was still on active duty, so um, there's a, a thing called the Hatch Act, which precludes um, staffers from getting involved in political activities. Right, and, You know, right. I was nervous of you know, the politics going in, and what was so refreshing was I was never asked to get involved in any of those types of discussions. Mm. I was only there for my expertise. And the people I worked alongside of, there weren't any sharp elbows. I mean, these are people you'd, you'd like to go have a cup of coffee with after work or grab a beer with. It was just really, um, it, it was a good experience in a lot of ways. And if I understand correctly, you also established an underground railroad? Yeah. So uh, when I was in Baghdad at the, it was the height of sectarian cleansing in 2006 and seven. And uh, they, so to put it in perspective for your listeners, there were 3,000 Iraqi civilians being killed every month between the warring factions. So that's a 9-11 level of trauma every single month for the year leading up to when I, I started the Underground Railroad, and, and uh, that's what my book is about. And... Um, it was just any Iraqi working alongside Americans was being targeted and killed. And I couldn't look myself in the mirror if we didn't do something to try to help them. Right. The only thing we had at the time was this special immigrant visa, and so we started trying to figure it out and quickly realized we couldn't figure out a bureaucracy, so no Iraqi was ever going to do it. Right. And um, then we set up this, this channel from Baghdad to Amman, Jordan, to the United States, where we had sponsors here to receive uh, those fortunate enough to get out. Now, was that work with the Underground Railroad, was that in conjunction with the NSC, or is that separate and distinct? No, I was I was uh, deployed to combat in Baghdad. As I was dual-headed as the uh, Deputy Brigade Commander for uh, the uh, Dagger Brigade Combat Team, and also as a Task Force Commander of what we called Task Force Justice, which was based on a large Iraqi uh, FOB, ba- forward operating base, and um, we had a small American contingent, and it was a very sensitive area uh, with uh, religious challenges, politics, and and Iraqi security forces, and so we were in the middle of all that, and um, it was just super dangerous for any Iraqi working alongside of us. Yeah, and this underground railroad that you helped in put together. Was this of your own fruition or was this a directive by a superior? No, this was uh, really me um, 
George Packer was with the New Yorker. He's a writer now, staff writer for the Atlantic. Um, but he embedded with me, and I had read uh, one of his previous books and just really liked his writing. Very thoughtful journalist. Um, he came in and did a story on uh, how challenging it was to be an interpreter or other local national partner for Americans, and and he wrote this. 15,000 word story with a one word title and the, the title was Betrayed. Wow. And it just, I, it was so raw for me, Paul, at the time. Uh, one of my closest interpreters had just been killed two weeks before that. Two weeks before him, Nadal, one of our store owners was killed. They were killed by different competing factions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, I couldn't read that article and and not, you know, break down. And so yeah. I just decided... You know, he's absolutely right, and we need to do something about it. So now I'm trying to reflect. I mean, you've got two really big things that you've done while you're on active duty. You're serving on the National Security Council, and you're doing this Underground Railroad, both of which seem like pretty big undertakings. What would you say was the hardest thing that you've done? You know, what is, was it the railroad? Was it the NSC or a combination? Like, what was that for you? Um, I, I, I think... The, so this is one of the issues I had when George published that article. You know, it's it very absolutely spot on with respect to the, the challenges that our Iraqi interpreters are facing. But but what I tried to explain to him was, you know, we're going in with this huge responsibility from uh, the, the American public. You know, I'm accountable to the mothers and fathers who are sending their sons and daughters right. into harm's way. Yep. And that tour was brutal. We we had 59 killed in action just in our brigade uh, back home in Schweinfurt, and we had all these other attachments from the the, uh, the U.S. that, you know, when you factored them in, there were 109 killed, Wow! and that just doesn't even include the wounded, and so having to go back to a, a mother or a father or a spouse or a loved one and you know, just describe why their son or daughter wasn't coming home. That was the hardest thing I had to do. Wow. Well, on behalf of a great foundation and somebody who's had to do that same job before, I want to thank you for your service, Steve. Well, as you know, it's an honor to serve, and a lot of us taking off our uniforms just want to keep looking for other ways to serve. Yeah, and on that note, you know, in your bio, you have a lot of work that you do regarding advocacy for First Amendment. Why is that so important to you? So I uh, I got into this space sort of in, in an interesting way. I was doing um, work very much in my wheelhouse, given my, my, you know, I spent almost half my career abroad. And uh, so I'm a foreign policy-focused practitioner. And uh, this, this nonprofit in D.C. asked me to do some work on understanding why it was, you know, a 15-year-old would get on an airplane, fly to Turkey, cross into Syria, and join ISIS. Yeah. You know, they couldn't wrap their mind around it. Right. But what they really wanted to know was, are there ways that faith leaders and civic leaders in the United States could complement government efforts to counter violent, violent extremism here at home? And so I did a study for them, and they asked me then to to help with this First Amendment project. And I said, you know, I think you got the wrong guy. I don't know anything about domestic politics. And and uh, m- 
my wife said, you know, honey, help them out. And, and they said, we're just looking for leadership. You don't need to be an expert in that space. And the more I have explored, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, all the First Amendment freedoms, it's so amazing. And it's, uh, it's an understanding of it is really lacking in our, in our culture. We don't, civics is gone from a lot of mainstream education. And so we do a lot of educating and giving people tools for engagement in the public square. But at the end of the day, our, our mission is to, to inspire people that, that active citizenry is the only way our government will function well. And so we try to encourage people to figure out what that means for them. I love it. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious. You also, on top of everything else that you're doing, you have a consulting company, SLC. And, you know, we only got about two minutes left, but I wonder if you would just share what the heart was behind that and, you know, how that ties into your book and, you know, like all the really lessons that you're trying to impart people. You talk about inspiring. I feel like you're doing that with your book and your company. Yeah, I'm trying. So SLC stands for Servant Leader Citizen. And so it's all, you know, about the work that I do and it's project driven. So one of the projects that we're doing right now is on evacuating our Afghan allies, our colleagues who are in harm's way. We've been doing it now. Um, well, we've been doing advocacy for over six months ever since the decision to withdraw, but the, the evacuation, the safe passage uh, work began in earnest in August. And uh, we will, we're funded all the way until the end of the year, but I will not be surprised if it does not go into all of 2022. The demand is just off the charts. We've got, we're getting 275 to 300 calls a week. Wow. I had a team of 20 people in person, full time in LA. Now we're, we're all virtual, but um, that continues. And so I just, you know, I just want to keep living out of, a model of service, you know, to the country, and SLT is one of the ways I do that. Amen, Steve. Well, last question: What advice would you offer to a young officer that maybe is just starting out their career and wants to make a difference in the world? Maybe not in the exact same way that you're doing, but they want to find their place in the world and inspire people, like you're talking about. Mm, great question. So, I, I really think, especially when you're young, it's important to go overseas. Go outside of your comfort zone get outside the box whether it's you know your first assignment or even just traveling just get out there and explore the world a little bit it, it opens up so many horizons and it'll it'll help the young leader on his or her path you know his or her journey and uh, so that's the best advice I can give right now I love it and you know I did two tours in uh, Germany and Japan as well as two deployments so I could not agree with you more and Steve, I want to thank you so very much for being on the show, imparting lessons in servant leadership and all that you're doing for our country. Thank you, Paul. Have a great day. You too. Listen, when we come back from the break, we'll reflect on the lessons of servant leadership that we've heard from today's guests. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough, a Jacob Media Production. And welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1492.3 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and as we close out today's show, let's just think about what we've heard from today's guest. I am so thankful that we had Robert Bayer and Colonel retired Steve Misk on the program today. So many lessons that they've imparted. I love what Robert was talking about. The idea that when he's able to go to his local church, that he feels welcomed. So I would say to you, a really simple way that you can serve other people, Veterans Day just passed on Thursday of this week. And it's really easy to go up to somebody and say, thank you for your service. But let's go a step beyond that. Can you go up to a veteran and really embrace them? Really make them feel welcome? Really make them feel that they are appreciated, not just on Veterans Day, but every single day. Have a relationship with them. He also talked about this idea of karma. And that's what I talk to you about every week, about when you do good and you put good into the universe, good will come back to you. And, you know, that's something that we can do in any walk of life. Even something as simple as serving your family. Do something for your family that's unexpected and see what God will do. And then when Steve was talking, I love how he said that he likes to inspire people and that God was able to use the talents, as he put it, that are in his wheelhouse to be able to give him a voice and to help literally save lives through the Underground Railroad and now his work with First Amendment advocacy. He's inspiring people. Now listen, everybody doesn't have the same giftings and talents, but everybody does have gifts. So I would encourage you to use your gifts, the things that are in your wheelhouse, to inspire people. Steve also talked about this idea of taking care of people and putting other people first. Listen, regardless of where you are at in life, maybe you're in business, how about you put your subordinates first? Put other people ahead of you and see what happens. See what God will do. And the last thing I thought was just so incredible as how you can develop as a servant leader. Steve talked about this idea of going overseas. And I could not agree with him more. It expands your horizons. It helps you to see other people's perspectives and helps you to understand how to better serve people that might be a little bit different than you. So I would say to you, get past your weaknesses or your perceived weaknesses, really, and see what God can do. So again, when you put good into the universe, good comes back to you. And about a month ago, I was able to have Kathleen and Michael Van Stein on the program. And just a couple of weeks ago, I had the great honor of going to their office at Spectra Care Foundation and seeing what an incredible facility they have for veterans. And they're going to be opening up here in the near future. They're making some final touches to really make it a special place for veterans. But I would just encourage you. It really blessed my heart to be able to see that and to be able to walk through that area and up to support them. So I would encourage you, if you are a veteran, go there. If you know a veteran, point them to it. Next week, two very special guests, Mr. Alex Archowski. He's a Navy veteran. I won't hold it against him. He was in the Navy. And he's also the founder of GPVN, the Greater Philadelphia Veterans Network. My second guest is my cousin and friend, Mr. Sammy Kasha. He's a pilot, he's a mentor, and he's the owner 
of Cash's Bakery in South Philadelphia. So I would encourage you to listen to the program. And if you want to hear some Becca episodes, go to my website, ReverendDrPaul.com. That's R-E-V-D-R-Paul.com. And finally, as you go about your week, no matter where you're at, always ask, how can I help? Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Promise. Your promise is there.